Good morning, everyone. As Sam's explained, I've been given the opportunity to kick off our Summer Sunday series. Hope you're enjoying the lovely weather so far. Um, but we're gonna, what we're going to be doing in this series is we're going to be looking at specific explorations about the character of God. So in this series, we're going to be covering topics such as God is holy, God is wise, God is mighty. But the topic I'm going to be covering this morning is God is love. So that's my topic. And the title of my message, really, God is love. And we're saying God is love that many times. You're going to be hearing it when you're trying to get to sleep tonight. So beware. Um, and you might think, well, God is love. And you might be thinking, aren't you stating the obvious there? You know, why have we got this guy preaching about God is love? Everybody knows that. This is Christianity 101. This is, why do you need to teach us that God is love? But I firmly believe not everybody knows that. There's, there might actually be people sat in this room this morning who doesn't believe that God loves them. We hear statistics such as there's an average of 6,000 people a year in the UK who sadly decide to commit suicide. We hear many cases of self-harm, depression. We hear loads of cases of loneliness. We're, surround, we're surrounded by people who need to understand the true message that God loves them. I often hear this statistic that a third of the world is Christian. I hear that a lot. A third of the population have given their lives to Jesus. So I hear, people, I hear many Christians say, well, it can't be that bad, can it? There's plenty of Christians out there. Now, I don't think that statistic is accurate, personally. I think a lot of people say that they're Christian because they would say they were born into a Christian family, which sort of makes you think, well, we don't really understand the gospel because they haven't brought Jesus into the reason that they've got a faith. But I could be wrong there. That's just my opinion. Um, but let's say, for argument's sake, that there is a third of the world that is Christian. Are you satisfied with that? Good. Because <laughs> I'm not. Because that means there's two-thirds of the world who've not accepted Jesus Christ into their lives. There's two-thirds of the world that does not know that God loves them. Think about that. And we need to be doing all that we can to help people know the truth that God loves them. There's loads of work for us to do. But as well as, you know, as, as, well as that, the whole subject of God being love is a subject that we forget ourselves, isn't it? We forget it at times, especially the moments when things start kicking off in our lives. People are turning against us. We've lost our job. Our boss is making our lives you know, like a living hell. The, you know, our friends have fallen out of us. We feel as if we're doing a ministry, we're not getting much fruit out of it. We feel ill, we feel injured. Sometimes we feel that God doesn't love us. But in those moments when we feel that God doesn't love us, we must still know that God still loves us. Our heart deceives us, doesn't it? And we need to hold on to the knowledge that God loves us. We can be so forgetful at times and we need to be reminded so that we can continue to truly believe that God is love. This can't be something that we just casually say. This has got to be something that we believe in. But if we let go of this foundational truth that God is love, then we'll not grow in our relationship with God. And that's a shame, isn't it? We'll not be effective for the kingdom, which is what God intends for us to be. Knowing and believing that God is love is essential for us all. Knowing that God is love is important, but I'm not just saying my opinion here. This is not what Rob Earl thinks. It says it in Scripture. 
That's where I've got it from. So it says it many times in Scripture, but the bit that we're looking at is 1 John 4, verses 7 to 10. I haven't got it up on the screen today, so we're going to have to do the old-fashioned way where people get the Bibles out and turn to it. But um, yeah, 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 10. Short passage, but loads in it. Okay. So when I stop hearing pages turn, I'll crack on. Is everyone good? Nice one. So it's titled, I'm reading from the New King James, and it's titled, God's Love and Ours. So, dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So we've got two points this morning. Sorry, thank God for his word. We've got two points this morning. And in the first point is that it's covered in verses seven and eight, that we must love one another. For us to know that this God is love, to get it, we need to put into the practice in our lives to love one another. Okay, we can't love God and then say, sack everybody else. Got to love one another. So, um, you may hear and think that, you know, this point of, well, if we don't love others, we don't know God. I mean, you might think, again, Rob, you're just stating the obvious. You know, why have you got this guy up here preaching, stating obvious things? But for a minute, let's just pause and think about what this really means. What does it mean to love someone? It means to be filled with compassion for them. It means that you're committed to them. It means that you're willing to go the extra mile for them. It means that they take a higher priority than yourself. So actually, what this passage is asking us to do is a tall ask. It's hard. Loving one another is something that I'm sure we've all failed at time and time again. And that's why we need to continuously examine ourselves in prayer to make sure that we're doing things for the right reasons, that it's not our egos that's taking control, that we're treating people in the righteous manner. That's a good part of our witness. If non-Christians see Christians treating others as bad, you know, as badly as a lot of people around the world today, they're not going to want to come to know Christ. They're going to see hypocrisy. And we've got to make sure as well that dark feelings such as bitterness and jealousy are not part of our motivation for serving God. It's tough, and we all need to support each other. But we love one another because we love God. God loves us all, and we must love others too. You know what? We'll never fulfill God's example. We'll never reach those standards. He's too great and mighty for that. But what we can do is follow his example as much as we can. We can do that. But if the moment comes where we're really seeking our hearts, and you know what? We can't be bothered to tell non-Christians the gospel. Or we feel we just, just rather look out for ourselves and forget about everybody else. Or we just don't fancy helping a brother or sister in Christ who's struggling in their walk with God. Or maybe, as believers, we just think, you know what? I, I can't be bothered meeting on a Sunday. I can't be bothered meeting with people. Then those are clear signs that we're not loving one another. And there's many more signs out there as well. I hear a lot of people say as well, especially when I did outreach in South Bank, I hear many people say that they're Christian, but they don't bother with church. I hear that a lot. They say, hey, Rob, 
My faith is my faith. That's what they say. Nobody else matters. And it's as if they're treating faith as an individual and selfish thing where no one else matters other than them. That's not loving one another, as the scriptures say. They haven't got it. Especially, and they haven't read the New Testament because loads of the New Testament, especially Corinthians, talks about the body of Christ, believers coming together to do amazing things for God. Spurring each other on, encouraging each other to do amazing things for the Lord. And people also ask the question, okay then, how do I show God that I love him? That question gets asked a lot. And they say, well, do I need to read more passages in the Bible? Will I show God that I love him more? Do I need to say longer prayers? Do I need to put more theological and fancy words in my prayers? Will I impress God? No, that doesn't make God, that doesn't mean that you love God more. Actually, you show God you love him through expression. So I'll explain what that means, okay? But I'm going to read and it doesn't really help my point here, Matthew 25, verses 31 to 40. It's a passage of the sheep and the goats. Amazing bit of scripture, this, so listen up. Again, reading from the New King James. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, this is Jesus talking, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you as a stranger invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Love that passage. Love it. And people say that the Bible's a boring book. I've no idea, do they? What that passage is saying is that when we do something good for someone else, we're not doing it to get publicity or to get our name in lights. You know, I'm not, you know, it's not like Rob Earl, super servant of God, look at me, everyone. No, we're not doing it for those motives. We're not doing it to get a warm, fuzzy feeling about ourselves. And actually, we're not primarily doing it for the person that we're helping. We're doing it for God. We're doing it because we love God. And when we give someone food, we are showing God that we love him. When we're giving someone shelter, that is an expression of love to God. When we tell people the gospel, we are showing God that we mean business, that we are fully on his side, and we are truly committed to the cause of building his kingdom. But we also need to be thinking about why is it we are doing what we are doing? Why are we here, Jubilee? What are we here for? Now, I run the church football team, as many of you know. Now, I don't do it because I love football. And I've got to be honest with you, I don't enjoy having to get up on at 7 o'clock on a Saturday morning to get all the football kit. I don't enjoy the drives up to Newcastle. I don't enjoy when I've got 20 players whinging at me because I haven't played them in the position that they want to play in. I do it because I love the lads in the team. I want to see them all go to heaven. I don't want to see any of them miss out. I want to see them all get saved. But most of all, above anything else, I am doing it for God. He's asked me to do it. I do it because I love him. I don't actually run the football team. He does. It's his football team. 
and it should go the same for any ministry that you're involved in. But at times, we can lose sight of these values of loving others and loving God, which is why we should always be open to examine ourselves and have other people in our lives who are going to tell us when we've lost our way. The brave friends who are going to say, look, Rob, you're being an idiot, stop it. We all need those friends in our lives, not those friends who just pat us on the back every minute of our lives. We do need people to encourage us, but we need people who are going to get real with us, iron sharp and dying. And I know there's been plenty of times when I've lost my way, especially with the football, where I've just concentrated on the football more than caring about those lads in the team, caring about God. And it's so easy to forget about your first love whilst you're serving your first love, especially when you've been doing it for such a long time. We can't love others without loving God. We can't love God without loving others. Both loving God and loving others goes hand in hand. So that's my first point. My second point, my final point, is that God loved us first. And this is confirmed in, uh, in the passage of uh, 1 John 4, verse 10. And over the years, I've witnessed this a lot, and maybe you have as well. I've heard people say that God isn't very loving. I've heard people, a lot of people say that. He's cruel. He's mean. And I find it unbelievable that people arrive at that conclusion. I really do. You know, people will say that God doesn't love us because there's suffering in the world. People go to that straight away. Uh, they've had a tough time. And the thing is, we're suffering. We're the ones that are responsible for bringing it into the world. We share that responsibility. Um, we may say it's not our fault, because it started with Adam and Eve in the, in the fall. So Adam and Eve rebelled against God, and that's when illness, sin, natural disaster, all the bad stuff, that's when it all came into the world. So we could say, well, that's not our fault. Let's blame Adam and Eve. It's their fault. Let's blame Adam and Eve. But actually, we would have done the same thing, wouldn't we, in Adam and Eve's situation? Let's be honest. If you think about our track record of how often we sin, how often we turn our backs on God, we, we would have done the same thing. So we need to all share the responsibility of why sin has come into the world. And if we're, you know, we can't live in perfection and live in sin at the same time, and if we're going to do things our own way, which we do for most of our existence, we can't live in perfection as well. It doesn't work like that. And the fact that we suffer is not a sign that God does not love us. It's actually a sign that God is righteous. And that suffering is a consequence. We have to face all of us. We're all in it together. But for, I'm going to stand up for God today, especially against those people who say that God doesn't love us. Let's look at what God's given us. He's created the world the universe, the sun, the moon, the stars, the planets, the sky, the clouds, the mountains, the fields, the oceans, the trees, the plants, the lakes and the rivers. He's given us mammals, birds, reptiles, amphibians, fish and insects. Who else has given you all those things? Do you know anybody? Because I don't. I'll continue. God has given us life. He's given us breath. He's given us bodies for our souls to live in. He's given us talents. He's given us interests. He's given us food to eat. He's given us water to drink. He's given us people to spend time with. He's given us work to do. He's given us a purpose to fulfill. He's given us a kingdom to build. And amazingly, people still say that God doesn't love us. Can you believe that? Now, I've highlighted several things, and I could have highlighted more, like amazing thing about Joel getting healed. God heals as well. Amazing. I've highlighted several things to support the argument that God is love. But I haven't mentioned the greatest act of love in the history of the world. 
which is actually stated in the passage that we've read this morning and is wonderfully described in John 3:16. Now, many of you may already be familiar with this verse, but I make no apologies for reading it out. It's a verse that we should never get sick of hearing because it beautifully describes the truth. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Let's think about what that means. Yeah, 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 I've heard that verse before. Thanks. Let's just pause again for a minute and have a look at what this verse is about. We rebel against God all the time. He created us. He gave us a chance to live. He gave us free will to either obey him or go our own way. But in turn, we've made bad choices. We've sinned time and time again. We've doubted God. We've, cr- we've criticized God. And we've turned our back on him many, many times. So, what does God do in response to our bad behavior? What does he do? Well, he doesn't throw us away. He doesn't give us up. He doesn't say, right, I'm not talking to you anymore. He actually gives us a chance to be restored to him. That's how God responds to our bad behavior. He sends his one and only, his perfect son, his sinless son, to die for us on the cross so that if we believe in what Jesus has done for us, then the fines of our sins can be paid for. It's a second chance. It's a second chance that none of us deserve. But God has given it to us anyway. He does that because he loves us. He loves every single one of you. Believe it. This is real love. This isn't the soppy love that we see in the soaps and the rom-coms where people love this person and go on to another person and all this love that people are declaring lasts for such a short period of time. Actually, this is strong love. This is tough love. This is real love. It's unconditional and it lasts forever. God doesn't stop loving you. He doesn't think, you know what, I'm bored of him. I'm going to stop loving him now. It lasts forever. God's in it for the long haul. We sin, but every time we come back to him, he welcomes us with arms wide open. Think about that parable of the prodigal son, how the father welcomed him back. That's what God does to us every time we come back to him. What's happened in the past is forgotten. And our relationship with him is restored. Isaiah 43, 25 says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. God said that. Now, I don't have any kids. I don't have any children on my own. And if I did, I wouldn't sacrifice my son or daughter for you lot. Sorry, Jubilee. I just wouldn't. If I was in God's position, I'd spare my child because I probably would love my child more than any of you. I love you, Jubilee. Don't get me wrong, but I just don't love you that much. Not to sacrifice my child to save you. And I can't imagine what the real parents in the room are thinking as I say that. But it's a good job, isn't it, we're not relying on me to save the world, isn't it? We'd be pretty much doomed if we're relying on me to save the world, do you me? But, but God loves you more than I do. Actually, God loves you more than your husband or your wife or your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your auntie or uncle or your best mate or your boss at work, your colleagues. You name it, God loves you more than any of those people especially me. (laughs) And the proof that God loves you more than anybody else, because actually, he sent Jesus to die for you on the cross. He did it. He didn't just talk about it and not bother. He did it. It happened. 
He chose to sacrifice his one and only son to spare your life so you can have eternal life. And you know what? If that's not an act of love, I'm sorry, I don't know what is. God loved us first. God loved us before we ever put a thought into place about whether or not we're going to love him. And that's why I find it astonishing that there's people out there who don't think that God is loving. Everything about him is loving. God is love. So to conclude, we show God that we love him through expressing our love to others. We appreciate one another. We don't take each other for granted. But also, we must have a hunger to help those in need and spread the gospel to those who've not accepted Jesus into their lives. Because we want to see as many people get to heaven as possible, don't we? Yeah? And if we're to show God our love, we must make sure we love others as well. We love God because he loved us first. He knew us before creation, and the fact that he gave us life, and he gave us his son, is all the proof we need to know that God is love. And if you don't believe that God is love this morning, please stop believing in those lies, because you're going to be robbing yourself of the greatest joy you can ever experience, and that is having a relationship with your heavenly father. There's nothing greater than that. Nothing. I just want to read a story about a little girl who finally went to Disney World. This is a true story written by a guy called Timothy Paul Jones. He says this, I never dreamed about taking a child to Disney World could be so difficult, or that such a trip could teach me so much about God's outrageous grace. Our middle daughter had been previously adopted by another family, I'm sure this couple had the best intentions, but they never quite integrated the adopted child into their family of biological children. After a couple of rough years, they dissolved the adoption, and we ended up welcoming an eight-year-old girl into our home. For one reason or another, whenever our daughter's previous family went to Disney World, they took their biological children with them, but they left their adopted daughter with a family friend. Usually, at least in a child's mind anyway, this happened because she did something wrong that precluded her presence on that trip. And by the time we adopted our daughter, she'd seen many pictures of Disney World and she heard about the rides, the characters and parades. But when it came to passing through the gates of Disney World, she'd always been the one left on the outside. Once I found out about this history, I made plans myself to take her to Disney World. I thought I'd mastered the Disney World drill. I knew from previous experiences that the prospect of seeing cast members in freakishly oversized mouse and duck costumes somehow turns children into squirming bundles of emotional instability. What I didn't expect was the prospect of visiting this dream world would produce a stream of downright devilish behavior in our newest daughter. In the month leading up to our trip, she stole food when a simple request would have gained her a snack. She lied when it would have been easy to tell the truth. She whispered insults that was carefully crafted to hurt her older sister as deeply as possible. And as the days on the calendar moved closer to the trip, her rebellions multiplied. A couple of days later, before our family headed to Florida, I pulled our daughter onto my lap to talk through her latest escapade. I know what you're going to do, she said flatly. You're not going to take me to Disney World, are you? The thought hadn't crossed my mind, but her downward spiral suddenly started to make some sense. She knew she couldn't earn her way to Disney World. She tried and failed that test several times before. So she was living in a way that placed her as far as possible for going on a dream holiday. 
In retrospect, I'm embarrassed to admit that I was tempted to turn her fear into my advantage. The easiest response would have been, well, if you don't start behaving better, you're right, I won't take you. But by God's grace, I didn't. Instead, I asked her, is this trip something that we're doing as a family? She nodded, brown eyes wide and tear-rimmed. I asked again, are you part of this family? She nodded again. Then you go on with us. Surely there may be some consequences to help you remember what's right and what's wrong, but you're part of our family and we are not leaving you behind. I would like to say from that moment, her behaviours grew better. They didn't. Her choices pretty much spiralled out of control at every hotel and place where we stopped on the way there. Still, we headed to Disney World on the day we'd promised. And it was typical Disney day. Overpriced tickets, overpriced meals, lots of lines mingled, mingled with just enough manufactured magic to consider maybe going again someday. In our hotel that, room, that evening, a very different child emerged. She was exhausted, thoughtful, and a little weepy at times. But a month-long facade of rebellion had faded. When bedtime rolled around, I prayed with her, I held her, and I asked her, so how was your first day at Disney World? She closed her eyes and snuggled into me. And after a few moments, she opened her eyes ever so slightly. Daddy, she said, I finally got to go to Disney World, but it wasn't because I was good. It's because I'm yours. It wasn't because I was good. It was because I'm yours. And we don't get a second chance given to us by our Heavenly Father because we're good. We're given the chance for restoration because we belong to him. We are his. He doesn't want to let us go. He doesn't want to throw us away. He cares far too much about us to do that. And he's reaching to all of us this morning. So please respond by embracing him and remembering that God is love. Amen.